Welcome to Cincy Reform Podcast. I'm Pastor Brandon. Joined with Pastor Zach, we are um, live from the Bat Cave today. But uh, no, we wanted to have a have a, a conversation today on creation, evolution, uh, different debates about creation and creation days. And it, it, it's helpful because we don't have to start from scratch, but the URC um, has actually done some work in this, and they, they put a report together, they've done some study on this, and they put together a helpful document on creation, on evolution, and they uh, were defending some things, but also left some room for disagreement. So, uh, Zach, maybe you can start us off by talking about that report and maybe some of the key pillars uh, theological pillars that the report uh, that the URC put out was trying to maintain and protect. Sure. Well, the conversation about creation really took place early in the uh, formation of our denomination back in 2001. Our initial uh, synod and uh, meetings began to happen in the mid-90s. and But uh, by the time you got to 2001, there was a real need to just clarify where are we going to stand on this sort of thing because the denomination that we came from had begun to affirm full-blown evolution and all the things that go along with that. So then the question, of course, became, became well, what do we affirm? And I think it was a pretty important point in time for our denomination because the United Reformed Churches at that point decided that they needed to be a truly confessional denomination and to really avoid adding um, adding things to what we have historically confessed. And the documents that we've historically confessed are the uh, ecumenical creeds, the Apostles, Nicene, Athanasian creeds, but also the three forms of unity which come to us from the uh, time of the Reformation, the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgian Confession, and Canons of Dort. And those, we believe, are sufficient in terms of a sufficient summary of what the Bible teaches. And in 2001 at the Synod Escondido, the body decided at that point to um, uh, restate, to reaffirm what our confessions, um, uh, how, the, how the confessions summarize the doctrine of creation. And as Brandon mentioned, there's some, some key pillars that uh, they established there. The uh, first one is that the uh, Bible is authoritative, it is clear, and it is sufficient in, um, in, in its uh, message to, to us. And that's of great significance because we need to recognize that the scientific discoveries, archaeological discoveries, they're not uh, filling in for uh, problems in the biblical text. They are also um, not authoritative. Uh, the biblical text is our sole ultimate authority. And so we, we began there to, to uh, establish where the Bible teaches about itself, where our confessions teach that the Bible is uh, authoritative, clear, and also sufficient. Uh, second, we affirmed what's oftentimes called ex nihilo or out of nothing creation, that uh, God created all things, both visible and invisible, out of nothing. So 
nothing has eternal being along with God. God is the eter- the only eternal, truly eternal uh, being, and uh, all other everything that we consider in creation—that's heaven, earth—all originally came from nothing. Third, that Adam was an historical person, and he was not um, a product of uh, evolutionary biology, but he was specially created as the first man. And you cannot go further back than Adam to trace back our human ancestry. Uh, Fourth, we uh, reaffirmed that Adam, in that creation state, he listened to Satan and fell from an original state of innocence. And fifth, that brought death and depravity to God's creation. And so those are some of the, the key pillars there that we reestablished, restated. And within that also, I think it's also um, of significance to, re- to um, uh, point out that the, cre- the, the creation days were then um, defined as just simply uh, the brackets given by Genesis 1. The evenings and mornings establish what the creation days were all about. Um, I should probably help a side note to point out that we rejected within that the evolutionary teachings that um, all things come from one primordial life being and that all things start branching out from that, but rather as our confessions teach that God gave creatures their uh, being, shape, form, and existence. And so, well, of course, we can recognize that dogs can become bigger and smaller but in terms of this, the broad macroevolutionary theory, uh, we reject that as being out of step with scriptures and with our uh, out of step with our um, traditional uh, doc, uh, confessional statements. And so, um, I think maybe it'd be helpful to talk about some of the views that you can then find within the United Reformed Churches. Again, thing, uh, views that affirm everything I just mentioned: that um, all things from nothing, that um, all things create good. There's no uh, evolutionary um, uh, ancestry to Adam that he's specially created by God and, and so forth. So, Brandon, do you want to kick us off maybe with the um, the Young Earth uh, traditional 624 view? Sure, yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah like we said, the, uh, the statement has some key pillars. Um, and it also, just a, as a side note too, it not only rejected e- evolution in a macro sense, but also theistic evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The idea that somehow God used yeah. this kind of Darwinian macro evolution in order to carry this out. So that view is being rejected as well. <clears throat> and there are some, there was some uh, room to disagree on some of the particulars of the matter. But again, I you know, like you said, I, I like how you said, we all are agreeing there's a historical Adam, there was a historical fall in history, and that fall brought death and depravity that was not on God's original um, very good creation uh, prior to the fall. And so we're maintaining, you know, those things. Uh, But yeah, so the first view that you might find in our federation is called the Young Earth Creation View. And that view believes that when you read Genesis 1, uh, as it talks about there was evening and morning day one, evening and morning day two, so on and so forth, that those are six literal 24-hour calendar days of evening and morning, evening and morning. 
And everything was created in six days in the way in which it's laid out in the chronological ordering. And uh, they would uh, uh, also cite places like Exodus 20.11, where it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, rested on the seventh day. And that becomes the pattern for our week. So our work week and our rhythm of work and rest, that, is, uh, that comes from the, the creation week. And the reason we know our week is because we know the creation week. Also in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, where Jesus said, um, uh, from the beginning he made them male and female. And so from the beginning, that's an allusion back to Genesis 1.1, he made them male and female, speaking about Adam and Eve, and kind of linking Adam and Eve and the beginning uh, to where things are relatively there. And so the young earth creation view would, would believe that um, you have six actual calendar days that are in view in Genesis 1. And the reason it's called young earth is because the, we have the genealogies in Scripture. And so the genealogies show us that from Adam to Abraham, you had about 2,000 years. And from us today, Abraham was about 4,000 years ago. So that gives you roughly about 6,000 years. Now, if there's some gaps or something in some of the, some of the genealogies, maybe you have 10 or 15,000. But even still, even if that were the case, it would still be relatively young, a young creation, a young cosmos, a young earth, a young humanity, um, being only within the thousands of years old, not the millions or, or billions of years old that uh, is being taught in, in various scientific circles. So young earth creation is wanting to maintain the historicity of creation as what they would call the plain reading of scripture is how would the people back in that day have understood in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. They would have understood that as very ordinary and how and and uh, because because it was, they would say. So that's the, that, that's the young earth creation view that you might find in the Federation. Uh, but Zach, we can also see people who hold to what's called the analogical day view. Uh, can you explain that view for us? Sure. The analogical view, uh, day view has a lot in common with the 624 view as in recognizing the um, importance of that uh, weekly pattern uh, for uh, mankind and that's it's really establishing that creation week as, as a pattern that becomes that's then followed by by us not just by Adam but by you and by me as we see ourselves as um, created in the image of God with the way that the analogical view um, approaches the text of Genesis is it recognizes that you know as we reflect deeply upon that biblical chapter and upon the biblical uh, text in, in general we begin to think, recognize that things like you know God speaking, you know, that fills up Genesis one, doesn't it? Um, things like you know God looking and observing and analyzing something, that these are really um, uh, analogies for us to understand God and His work, because God does not have vocal cords like we do to speak. Um, God does not have eyes and does not need to sit back and analyze and then 
you scratch his chin and make a determination about how something is good or not good or whatever it is. Um, and so what you really see within these, uh, that, that first chapter of Genesis, according to the analogical day view, is a, a God who is um, acting in a text that's, that's, a, that's describing the work of God in a way that we can then understand it better. Even though it's not one for one exactly, um, you know, God speaking with vocal cords, for example. The analogical day view also recognizes within the uh, first chapter of Genesis that same, something that will be recognized by others as well, that God is being described there as something of a workman. And the analogical day then takes that and says, well, God is being uh, described as a worker for us, and he's actually working during daylight hours. He finishes in the evening. It, he's as of going out in the morning into his labors, finishes in the evening to go to, to go to sleep. He does that for six days. Then on the seventh day, he, he rests and is refreshed from all of his work. And so how do we understand that about God? Do we actually think that God is um, only uh, doing something during the daylight hours? Is he only uh, doing something on um, Sunday through Friday in that first week? Or is this, again, an analogy given to us to help us understand our labors? And so the analogical takes in that latter approach to say, you know, we're, we're, we're given, being given a, a work week of God. How do we understand a work week of God? Well, it, there's a, a real element of mystery going on as to what does that really mean for God to be out working? What does it mean for God to be uh, described for us as almost like an Egyptian um, house builder or an, uh, an Israelite a uh, house builder who's constructing his own uh, cosmic temple. Um, does this mean then that uh, we have to have a one-for-one, one, this is an exact 24-hour day? The analogical day you would say no, because it's given to us as a likeness. God uh, is like a workman building a temple. God is like someone who's going out in the daylight hours and fishing at night. God is like someone who's working uh, six days of the week, but he rests on the seventh. And why do we say analogical in that way? Well, the analogical day person would say it is because God is giving us a pattern for how we ought to work and to conduct ourselves. It gets, the, it gets very close to saying six sequential 24-hour days, but it stops short of that by saying, well, there's an element of mystery that we're not quite so confident to say um, the exact length of the creation days. So, uh, Brandon, do you want to go maybe a little bit of a step further removed, I guess you could say, from the 624 by going to the uh, framework uh, view? Yeah, so yeah, the, the framework view is a little, there's, there's an element that's like the analogical day view, but there's basically three things that the framework view is saying, and one of the framework proponents was a theologian named Meredith Klein. Uh, and in, in, in his writings, Meredith Klein is, is pretty upfront in saying that he's not um, he's not positing the framework view because he's you know somehow wants to capitulate to science. He thinks that this is actually what the text is teaching, and he he's apathetic toward the age of the Earth. He said this very it could very well be a young Earth framework view. Because the framework view he thinks is a is a biblical theological view uh, into creation as the Bible is presenting it, and he wants to say maintain three points with the uh, the framework view. The first thing he says is that when you look at the six days, 
there's a pattern going on where in days one through three, kingdoms are being created. And in days four, five, six, you could say kings are being created that rule the kingdom. So for example, in day one, light is created. But in day four, the sun, moon, stars are created. And you, you see this pattern again with day, uh, day two. The waters separate from the waters, the firmament, the atmosphere, corresponding to day five, where you have sea creatures and, land, and flying creatures. And then day three is the, uh, the land is being created. And then in day six, land animals and humans. And so he says you can see that there is a literary correspondence happening. Uh, so unlike the, um, the 624 Young Earth Creation view, unlike even many of the proponents of the analogical view, the framework view is saying it's not sequential. So the creation days are non-sequential days where, uh, where uh, the Bible is teaching, he would say, the, the framework view would say, is that God created the realms and the things to populate the realms not necessarily teaching us in the exact flow in which they happened. So that's the first thing is, is, is what Klein notices, is that there's a, a literary thing happening with these parallels of kingdoms and kings. Second thing he wants to say is very much like the analogical day view. When you open up Genesis chapter 1, it begins by in the beginning. And that's speaking of God's you know, eternity. Uh, speaking of, it's kind of bringing us into this, this uh, you know, God who existed in himself, and he created. And, um, and then it, it ends on the seventh day. And the writer of Hebrews seems to allude that the seventh day is an eternal day. Uh, it's, it's a rest that we are to strive to enter. So Meredith Klein would say, bracketed between the six days in Genesis, you have eternity and eternity bracketing, uh, bookmarking the, the, um, the six days that we see in Genesis. And so he would say that the six days in Genesis 1 are analogs. They're analogous because they are, they are bracketed by eternity. And we don't know, in terms, of, in terms of our human calendars, we don't know what the days are. Are they long you know, epochs? Uh, we have no idea. So that's the second thing that the framework view wants to do. The third thing the framework view wants to do is when you read Genesis chapter 2, for example, it makes the statement that there was no vegetation because it had not rained yet. And Meredith Klein picks up on that phrase, because it had not rained. And he says, you see what's going on here in creation is a very ordinary thing. Now, God could have supernaturally made vegetation, but it's interesting that he says, well, it hadn't rained yet. How are you going to have vegetation? It hadn't rained. So Klein says, yes, God can do all things, but he's chosen to do the work of creation in a very ordinary way. So there was perhaps a supernatural beginning, but a very ordinary way in which it worked out. So Klein would say it doesn't make sense to have this supernatural light of day one only to be swapped and replaced by a sun on day four. Like he would say that doesn't make any sense. 
uh, it makes sense that the sun gives light and not have some supernatural light uh, because that's not the way in which God is working. The way in which God is working is ordinary in, in, in terms of how he's working things out in creation. So the framework view is wanting to see the literary structures, see the analogical days, and see how God has told us the ordinary ways in which he creates. Uh, perhaps we can um, uh, end our taxonomy here by talking a little bit about the, the modified gap theory. You want to explain that to us? Sure, yeah. I think in brief here, the modified gap theory affirms that there is a, um, a, a gap. It puts forward a, a gap of great duration in between Genesis 1 verse 2 and uh, Genesis 1 verse 3, which would then be, verse 3 begins the uh, first day of creation. And so by uh, positing that gap there, it's then is able to then maintain a very old uh, creation uh, created many, a very long time ago with a very young humanity, and I think that's the basic gist of what you could say about the modified uh, gap view. Anything else you might want to say about that? Yeah, I mean, like you said, uh, there's a gap between Genesis two and Genesis three, so it puts it puts heaven and earth outside of day one, right? So. Uh, when they, when a modified gap theorist is defining or or talking about the creation days, day one is usually only light because that's kind of where where they begin with it. Uh, but it also, I mean, a lot of uh, proponents would 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 posit this because they want to account for some of the the the, the large uh, geological readings that we're getting of the Earth being millions of years old or something, and so they're trying to say, well, how can that be? Well, it makes sense if God created the Earth formless and void; it sat there for whatever science is saying, yeah. and then. God came to the earth again, and in six 24-hour chronological days, Genesis 1 did everything in order at that point. Um, so yeah, anything else on creation? I don't, I don't think so. I think that uh, maybe just to kind of close as we kind of began, unless you have other thoughts too, but the significance of you know, being a confessional uh, denomination and tradition is um, is big because it means that you can still have intramural disagreements on things, but you know where you agree. You know that we are not going to compromise historical Adam, and if we did, then there there are real problems there, and ministers could be removed, for example, or elders or deacons. Um, I think I think it's helpful because it also keeps us from being, uh, you know, being confessional helps us from. Just you know, following the priorities of the day um, gives us a little bit better rootedness, I think, and to say, even though in our day, you know, many want to make certain uh, viewpoints, somebody could make six twenty four into a viewpoint that is like the mark of orthodoxy. Well, we don't necessarily need to go along with that, even if many of our people and most of our people in our federation affirm that view. It doesn't become uh, like the only possibility. So I think that there, there's real benefits to, I like, I like this topic as just a test case to figure out and understand what does it mean to be uh, confessional and, um, 
Uh, so I find it to be um, of, of value. Yeah, and, yeah. There was a, um, I can't remember where I heard this phrase, but they were talking about being confessional and confessions, and they got the one person said, you know, confessions give us a place to stand, but they also give us some room to move. Hmm. Um, and That's so, good. you know, we know exactly where we're standing and what we're standing on, but we also know the places where the confessions um, purposely leave a bit vague, uh, um, in terms of not being dogmatic about some of the particulars and minutia. So good stuff. Well, we hope it's been helpful for you as well. Thanks for joining us in this week's episode of the Cincy Reform podcast. Check our uh, other episodes out at cincyreforms.org. Check out Westside Reform Church, which uh, sponsors this podcast at westsidereform.org. We are a URC congregation in Cincinnati. And we hope that if you're in the area, you join us some, some Sunday. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.